From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center, and by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. What happens when the individuals most negatively impacted by a disease are not being screened? Racial disparities in prostate cancer screenings are persistent, as Black men are both underscreened for prostate cancer while having an increased incidence of prostate cancer and mortality in comparison to white men. In a recent episode, the NFL and community-engaged research we spoke with Dr. Alicia Whittington, Assistant Director of Engagement and Health Equity Research at the Football Players Health Study and a board member at the Augustus A. White III Institute for Healthcare Equity. Today, we are joined once again by Dr. Whittington and a second Augustus A. White III board member, Dr. Jacques Carter, a physician at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and previous medical director of the Prostate Cancer Screening and Education Program at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Welcome to the show, Drs. Carter and Whittington. We're really excited to have you here and have this discussion. First, Dr. Carter, you are currently an attending physician at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School while doing work in health equity. Could you walk us through your career path? Sure, I'd love to. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and always thought I was going to do something in, in medicine or public health when I was a young person in grade school and had a great interest in sciences. And I uh, went to Howard University in Washington, where I was actually a psychology major because uh, psychology majors were in vogue at that time. And when I got out, instead of applying to medical school, because I didn't think I was ready, I got a job working in public health in Washington. And I worked for the Department of Public Health as a sanitarian, which is a fancy name for a health inspector. I did mostly uh, environmental health work, uh, air, water, food, uh, sanitation. And because I had a degree and most of the other folks in uh, that uh, division did not, I, I was able to advance fairly quickly. In D.C., everybody is important. When anything comes from the Congress, it's important you have to act on it. And at the time, the city was controlled by the Congress, still is, but then even more so because they had no home rule. There was no mayor uh, in D.C. You had a board of commissioners. So when, when a congressman or senator complained about anything in the city, wheels started to turn and things got done. And I wrote many, many reports to, that never had my name on them that went to some senator you know, on the Hill. As I, as I started to, to do the work, I thought maybe I'm not going to be a, a doctor and maybe I'll do, be a public health specialist. That's what I really thought I was going to do. Mm-hmm. I was impressed with some of the people I worked with in the administration in D.C. And I thought maybe I'd get some graduate work in public health. And it had just so happens that I went to a meeting in Minneapolis having to do with waste control since I was chief of that division. I had um, a chance to meet with a person who ran the department for the MPH program at University of Minnesota. He reviewed my record from discussion and, and thought that I did not have enough sciences. And so I said, if you wanted to get into this program, you got to go get more sciences. Okay. So I went back home, of course, and I looked around for where I wanted to get these sciences and ended up um, uh, getting courses at George Washington University. They had a program in environmental health. Initially, I just took a couple of courses, one in uh, 
uh, malariology and another in tropical medicine. And then I just took the whole core program and got a second degree actually in environmental health. And because of where that course was taught, it sort of changed to, uh, the trajectory on what I was going to do in my life. Because if that had been taught in an engineering program, then maybe I would have stayed in, in environmental health. But because it was taught in the medical school from a paramedical standpoint, not so much from engineering, now I want to go to medical school. And, and although I had applied to lots of schools of public health, including uh, the one here on Huntington Avenue, one in New Haven, and of course, Minnesota, and I got in, I didn't get into New Haven, but I got into Harvard and Hopkins and Minnesota, and I actually put those things on hold because I'm going to medical school now. And I, and I actually wrote all the directors of the school saying that I would look at that again when I finished my four years. And, and of course, uh, I finished my four years and I'm thinking all the time now I'm going to be this uh, outbreak kind of a doctor stomping out, you know, crazy outbreaks of Ebola and some weird things, some parts of Africa or Asia. And when I finished my four years of medicine, I again put off the school to public health because I wanted to do a residency. Mm. So by the time it came time for me to actually matriculate at the school of public health, my application was so old, <laughs> I had to go back and redo it, you know. But I knew I was going to go to Harvard. Uh, coming to Boston, the train took me out of the Baltimore, D.C. area because, you know, I, I could have gone to Hopkins for my residency. And I think if I had done that, I never would have left the, my home area. I would have been somewhere in that, in that, in that sphere. Mm. So it, it brought me here and got me sort of involved in public health activities. I um, started doing work in health equity. Uh, I, I went to a tea put on by the Dean of Students at, at the Harvard School of Public Health. And she was going around saying, what are you doing in public health? So she got to me and she said, so what are you doing now? I said, when well, I'm working at Beth Israel Deacon. She said, no, what are you doing in public health? And I scratched my head and I thought that I wasn't doing some of the stuff that I planned to do in public health. I was a clinician, I was taking care of patients and teaching medical residents and medical students, but I wasn't really doing some of the things that I thought I should have been doing in public health. So I said, well, let me get going. And so I, uh, I applied for a position on the Board of Health in Brookline. I live in Brookline and I took care of a lot of Brookline employees in my office down in Brookline Village. So um, some folks spoke up for me and I actually got one of these uh, five spots on the Board of Health. And they're plum spots because everybody, you know, the town is loaded with medical people, nurses, mm -hmm. doctors, public health, social, everybody wants to do this. So I get on this board and I'm the newbie, you know, but I'm the only, only MD mm -hmm. on the board. Um, and the uh, the person who was in charge was leaving and they were hiring a new director. And it just so happens that Brookline wants to stop smoking in public accommodation. No smoking in town. First town to do it uh, in the state. They were going to uh, bring it in over time. It's going to be gradually in over five years, you know, to, to cut down on the pension pains. So I got asked by the then chair who said she was going to be out of town. I had no idea what I was walking into. So I walk into the meeting in the high school and the place is packed and there and there signs, you know, save my job. You want to put me out of business and all this kind of stuff. And these are all the bar owners and town owners that all the business is going to go to the nearby. They're going to go to Brighton and Newton. Our bars are going to close. The restaurants are going to close. So people need to smoke, you know, when they're eating and drinking. And uh, it was, it was sort of intimidating in the sense that you had these people booing. A lady got up and she said, well, you know, my daughter who she's eight and she has asthma and she can't be around smoke, boo. <laughs> I mean, it's a great deal kid. I mean, <laughs> this, this, is, this is a hostile environment. But in any, any event, I got up and I made, my, I made my point, stated my case. There was one bartender who said that he was going to be put out of a job. So when I got up, I said, you know, I, uh, 
I care about the folks in the town. I care about you too as a bartender. I think that I want to protect your lungs from side stream smoke and on and on and on. And so the role of the health department is to do that kind of protection. And and when I left and they made the vote, they actually made everything come in in a three months. And no graduation. It was like it's going to be wow. done in the whole town. And they did it. It was tough, uh, you know, for some of the owners uh, because uh, uh, people had to come outside to smoke, but they couldn't smoke inside. We offered an option of having, a, if you had a separate room with separate ventilation that only the smokers could, you know, be exposed to the smoke. And only one restaurant in town did that. And, and they never used it. They had going to be a cigar bar, they called it, but it was a bar, but they never used it for smoking because they were concerned about building it and then have to the, have the rules change, you know, a year later. And I just spent all this money, the separate system. And then all of a sudden the government changes the rules. So only one place did the building and never used it. So that was sort of my first real foray into uh, public health as, uh, as a, a manager, an administrator, somebody who's leading the organization. And so the year later, when the lady left, who I substituted for that time, she actually nominated me to be the new chair. Oh, and uh, in my third year on the board, I became chair. And I had uh, four more three-year terms as chair. So I did 13 years as chair of Board of Health in Brookline. And every year, every year you vote for the chair. And, you know, somebody would say, well, we vote for Carter again, you know. And I finally told the, the commissioner, I said, look, I'm not going to do it next time because I'm sure there's somebody on here who wants to do it. But they didn't want to say so, you know, because once you get nominated, I mean, it's a small little group. All of us are together. So, you know, if you say something about me, I'm going to know it, you know, so... So uh, I finally stepped off after after that time. I'd been there long enough. I'd done more work in public health uh, in the town of Brookline, dealing with all kinds of issues in small town with a lot of people who who like to fuss about stuff and complain. <laughs> and uh, and so many many things came to the to the board of health. And uh, unlike a bigger city where you know um, your complaints don't nobody pays attention sometimes in small town somebody's going to pay attention because. That person's at the door of the health commissioner knocking on the door or calling, you know, with his personal telephone number saying, you know, you got to do something about this. But that was sort of how things went. And I, I actually enjoyed that. I was always at meetings and uh, we had a uh, public health leadership award, which we give out to some prominent person in town uh, mm -hmm. every year. And of course, I pushed it off of myself as being the person who shouldn't get it because I'm the chair of the board. So when I get off, of course, I can't stop these guys from giving me this award. But the funny thing about the award is that I go to the library where they're having my little party and I'm, I'm getting this award. And then one of the members of the board of selectmen who had been around for years, she walks up, she said, you know, I didn't know you didn't work for the town <laughs> because I had all the meetings every night, every day. I was in all these meetings and, you know, I don't know how I kept a job, but, uh, but she said, I, you know, I thought you worked for us. I didn't know that you were a volunteer, yeah. but the town is full of volunteers. We've got all these volunteer boards. Some people take it seriously. Some people are very tough with their roles. Other people try to be uh, nicer to the residents. But uh, there are a lot of boards in town, and the, and that public health board was the the plum board. I was uh, certainly happy to have, have, have taken that. And in fact, for the longest time, I was the only person of color in any kind of leadership role in the town, even though it was a volunteer leadership role. But that was sort of how I got going again in public health after you know spending time working on some clinical research and other things that was not directly related to public health and it brings you face to face with with health equity issues thank you for walking us through your career and the volunteer work you did and, and so many different aspects of your your career path but what inspired you to work in health equity i'll tell you it's another one of these things that falls into your lap i have a good friend who works at dana farber cancer institute 
so I got asked one day to participate in this uh, Massachusetts uh, Prostate Cancer Symposium, which they have uh, every year in May. And this, I think, was the second one they'd had. And I got asked to run a workshop on um, prostate cancer in African-Americans. You know, I take care of African-American patients, a lot of men. So I figured this is a breeze. I'm going to go to this workshop mm -hmm. where I fully mm -hmm. expected there'd be, uh, you know, 10 people listen to me talk. And I, and I rolled into this room and it was packed and they had a camera sitting in the middle of the crowd. And so two of us are sort of moderating this program. There's a, there's a minister from uh, Roxbury or Dorchester who was a prostate cancer survivor and me. And I'm looking at the front row and there's uh, Bill Owens, one of the senators, you know, from Roxbury, one of the, had been a senator for a long, long time. And uh, Charlie Austin, who was a, a news anchor on WBC, all these survivors is seeing all these folks there in the room being packed like it was with a lot of health mm -hmm. professionals. It made me, you know, know that there was something different going on here. And prostate cancer, which has the worst disparities of any cancer among any group, prostate cancer in black men compared to white men is has, has, you know, two and a half times the mortality. So that, that just, to me, just made a lot of sense that I'd be doing some work in that sphere. And the big piece is that, you know, because I did that talk and, and, and that symposium number two back in, I don't know, 20 plus years ago, I got asked to do it again following May. And I said, fine, I'll do it again. But this time they said, uh, they want you to deal with prostate cancer in minorities. Now, you know, it's a little different because folks have different risk factors and different morbidity rates and all. So um, uh, that was a little tougher, but it made me start to look at different folks and how different kinds of cancers impact different groups differently. How you have to make sure that when you're dealing with black folks that, you know, you got to separate out, you know, the Haitians from the Jamaicans, from because they all have different cultural pieces that mm -hmm. impact how they deal with health issues. You look right. at mortality, look at infant mortality among the groups, you know, you can have this sort of monolithic black group, but then you get into that, you know, different groups have different kinds of mortality. So you have to be careful how you look at folks of color. But anyway, I started doing that. And because, one little another story, because I was, uh, I was doing this symposiums, uh, one of my friends who worked at Dana, they wanted somebody to work uh, doing some prostate cancer screening in the community uh, because Dana had recognized these huge gaps in mortality between black men and white men, 50% more incidents, but two and a half times the mortality uh, with prostate cancer in black men. And they, and they were getting it at an, at an earlier age. So you got younger patients getting prostate cancer and they're dying uh, a, a more aggressive disease. And they recognize that, you know, I have to give kudos to Dana because uh, they didn't have to do that. I mean, they're, they're a treating institution. Yeah, it's not for them to go out and find the cases. But somebody in, in community benefits at that institution recognized that there was a huge disparity and they were willing to put some money into it, put some effort into it. And there was some money coming from Gillette, the razor blade company. And Gillette decided to sponsor this van. So uh, I, as the medical director and one of my good buddies, my good buddies now, we were we were just working together in the beginning, but he was the educator and, and navigator. And we had a whole team, somebody driving, the, driving this big 40-foot RV called the Blum Family Van. And we had me working in the back. We had people drawing blood. So we actually went out and we worked with community organizations. So, you know, a church would call us. We want to have a prostate program. And we set out the time. We pulled the van up in front of the church and everything was self-contained. And they would get the people to come on the van and, and we screened. And we did that for uh, 10 years. I did it for 10 years. And through that time, we educated and screened about 
five, 6,000 men uh, all over, all over Boston, down on the Cape. We even went down to Newport the, with the YMCA down there. But we educated and screened a lot of people and the hope and the process saved some lives. But that particular focus on disparities led me to work with a group called FEN, P-H-E-N, which stands for Prostate Health Education Network. And a guy named Tom Farrington started that. You know, he had prostate cancer and he uh, wrote a book called uh, Battling the Enemy Within. And uh, he started FEN with the support from Dana Farber. So Dana allowed them to have the meetings in the boardroom once a month the support group meetings for men, you know, and this was, was geared to African-American men, but anybody could come. Okay. It was all mixed, but it was geared to those guys because that was the disparity. And I started because I was working with the Blum family van as this prostate cancer screening and education program at Dana. I felt somewhat obligated to show up to the support group meeting. And like anything else, you know, you go three or four times, all of a sudden you're part of the meeting. So, so it got to the point where uh, at every meeting I was asked to, and counsel the newly diagnosed men and we take them into a separate space sometimes one two sometimes four or five and uh, we would show them a video from the nih about fighting prostate cancer and answer all their questions and that became part of the routine for years we did that and again that was in men's health prostate cancer which i did a lot of I did a lot of other work in other cancers too with women and breast cancer and other things but but that was a focus that i still have today i still do the mass symposium uh, every year. I did it um, last month. So Dr. Carter, you used to be the medical director of the prostate yeah. cancer screening and education program at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, which you were just talking about. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about the work, how that work ties into health equity? You started to talk about it, obviously, with the group yeah. you were in, but if you have anything else you'd like to share with us. I'm a believer in the fact that if you put it out there in the right way, people get educated. But one thing about the FEN program is that you know, we went to Washington every September, prostate cancer went every September. We had a big program in DC on the Hill sponsored by the Black Caucus. And they put us up and we had a room in the Capitol and we'd have people come in and talk. And at one point when a pretty big study was done, it's called the Pilco study, uh, dealing with prostate cancer, ovarian cancer, and a couple other things. And they looked at, uh, at prostate cancer therapies and treatments over the years. And they ended up, up sort of saying that it made no difference whether you got screened or not in terms of mortality. And that study came out and it said, therefore, uh, men shouldn't be screened. This is from the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, which is, you know, to folks who do uh, primary care medicine, it's like the Bible. They sort of tell you, you know, check somebody's eyes, don't check eyes. You know, change your diet, don't change your diet. Treat the cholesterol, don't treat it. And they came out and said no screening. So, you know, guys heard that. You know, they heard the fact mm-hmm. that the government says no screening doesn't make any difference. And that was a big mistake because what, 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 it, what it led to was uh, the fact that men, especially black men, don't want to be screened anyway. You know, they, mm-hmm. they want to stay as far away from the doctors as they can, right. you know. And so now you're giving them an excuse, you know, saying, hey, it's legitimate. No need to screen. No need to have a digital rectal examination. Not doing that to me, doc. I don't need that anymore. And then we saw uh, as that came down, we saw that we started to have men presenting again, with more advanced prostate cancer. We had sort of dropped the numbers, you know, by getting guys screened and picking up early cancers. Now, mm-hmm. the big argument with screening everybody on you know, population-based screening is that uh, you pick up a lot of guys who have sort of insignificant prostate cancer. They got prostate cancer, but, you know, if you didn't tell them they had it, they wouldn't know it, and they'd die mm-hmm. of a stroke or heart attack or something at 85 and never knew they had it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we sort of picking them up early 
And then these guys now want to be treated. Even sometimes when you say, hey, you don't have to be treated. They want to mm -hmm. be treated and they have all the complications associated with the treatment. For a lot of guys, mm -hmm. surgery, there's some incontinence and a whole bunch of things, uh, impotence and on. And so um, stopping, you know, the population basically made a lot of sense. You, you know, you, at least you want to have people who, who have serious disease and not sort of this low level disease that's never going to bother them. Mm -hmm. So it's like throwing out the baby with the bathwater. In this case, you know, all those black guys got tossed, you know, they were in the basin mm -hmm. and they got tossed out because they were in with the white guys who had minor disease. And we started seeing more and more of that. And we started to petition the task force. And, and I actually moderated a session on the Hill with the then chairman of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, who was at the time was a woman from UCSF and uh, a woman from Dana and, uh, and a woman from a, a cancer institute out in Washington. So it was three women on the panel and me. And, and we stated the case at that point that uh, there should be some exceptions for men at high risk. And that included mm -hmm. all African-Americans, a man of African descent, and any man who has a family history of prostate cancer. So if you had a mm -hmm. white guy whose brother had prostate cancer, he's at high risk, plain and simple the truth. And they finally put out a proposal, uh, this was done a couple of years ago, that men at high risk should have a discussion. And they changed the grade from a, from a D, that is, you know, there's no benefit at all to a C that there's possibly benefit for spending these high risk guys. And that is pure equity issues. Those are, those are issues that deal straight up and down with, you know, you've got a group who's at high risk. If you don't screen them properly, they get lost and they end up with bad disease and the numbers look even worse. So that's the political piece of this thing. There's all these little pieces, you know, that you get into in public health. And, you know, you got the political piece, administrative piece, you know, you got right. the science, you know, you got the uh, ethical dilemmas and, and the mm -hmm. whole thing. And that's what we have to deal with. And this stuff goes way back. I mean, I've done lectures on disparities and how things started back in, you know, slavery time. Even before that, you can go way back. There was a, um, a couple, uh, friends of mine, his name was Michael Bird, Wilbur Michael Bird. He went by W. Michael Bird and his wife, Linda Clayton. They were both black gynecologists and they uh, came to, uh, to Harvard to do MPH and they had fellowships at Harvard School of Public Health. And they did this, these two books called The American Health Dilemma, dealing primarily with disparities in health. Both books got nominated for Pulitzer Prizes, but it all had to, all dealt with disparities. The American Health Dilemma is, is a disparities in health care and how we can straighten that up and make folks have similar lifespans, mm. you know, and, and not have this huge difference in one zip code. You're a woman, you live to be 89 and another one, you, mm -hmm. you know, you're 69. So... There's a lot of work being done in this area, but there's already been much, much done, excellent work that's been done uh, to help uh, deal with uh, disparities in health. Thank you so much. So for both Drs. Carter and Whittington, you are both on the board at the Augustus A. White III Institute. Um, could you briefly describe the goals of the Institute and how you got started there? The Institute, uh, uh, the brainchild of, uh, of attorney Macy Russell, who's done some disparities work for a long, long time in, in, the, in the legal profession. And Kurt Taylor, who's a neurologist, and myself, and we've talked about it for a bit, but Macy was the impetus behind getting it off the ground. We shopped it around to the medical institutions to get somebody to be interested in it. Macy was on the board here at BI Deacon and spoke to the leadership, and they sort of were supportive, but nobody ever sort of got it off the ground. And Macy sort of, you know, pulled together a group, including uh, Alicia and others, uh, to be the board for this institution. And, and the whole idea was to serve as a, I guess, as a um, platform 
for being able to uh, look at all the stakeholders that have to do with health equity in this country. That is the uh, Red Cross and, and the March of Dimes and all those folks, but also institutions, you know, all stakeholders in this and the public. Bring them all together and try to find a way to, to level the playing field, if you will, to, to deal with equity and not equality and how mm. to make that the real deal. And it was named after Gus White because Gus had done some work in that area over the years, had done some writing in that area. And Alicia can talk about uh, Dr. White. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a, her, her mentor. But, mm-hmm. but I think that because Gus had done that, we thought it was a good idea to, uh, uh, to name the Institute after him and, and talk about uh, some of the things that he talked about in his books over the years. And we're still trying to bring that all together, trying to bring together the various stakeholders. If you are X organization and you're dealing with maternal and child mortality issues and disparities in that area, we want that information on our website so we can send it out to people who we deal with. And that Mm -hmm. actually helps the other organizations. So we want them to be stakeholders in what we do because we are not competitors. We're trying Mm -hmm. to help improve disparities in this country. And if we have to sort of uh, swallow a little pride and have somebody bigger than us, you know, Mm -hmm. doing something, let them do it. You know, because that's going to help the people that we're focused on here. Mm. Can I go back just one moment? You mentioned equality and equity and really reaching equity. Um, Can I ask you or Dr. Whittington to speak to that a little bit for those who may not know the difference? Dr. Whittington? Sure. Um, So thanks so much for having us on today and for having me back. So the difference between equity and equality. Equity is fairness under all circumstances. Mm-hmm. And equality is equal. Mm-hmm. But when you think about all of the different challenges um, that arise, just being a human, um, and it, as Dr. Carter said, in different zip codes, there's mm-hmm. uh, lots of different things going on. So for example, um, there may or may not be um, a clinic or some sort of resource in a particular mm-hmm. area versus another one. And so things like transportation, um, they have an impact on access. Sure. Part of it is that to have equal outcomes sometimes requires that I give you a little bit more than I give her. Mm-hmm. You know, now that's equity. Now, mm-hmm. you know, I can say, okay, everybody gets a $100 bonus. Okay, and you get a $100 bonus. Well, maybe you in your circumstances need $200. Equality, everybody gets 100, 100 bucks but it's not equity trying to bring you up to where somebody else is. Well, as Dr. Carter mentioned before, some of the historical pieces. Mm -hmm. So when you look at that and you see how different cross-sections throughout society were excluded, marginalized, and um, it was intentional. And then even when trying to, um, let's say, become a physician, I'm sure Dr. Carter could speak even more on this, the number of individuals in the room making decisions, coming up with best practices, standards mm-hmm. of care, it makes a difference when you have uh, diversity at the table, diversity mm-hmm. of thought, diversity of everything. I think I was a social justice warrior before I even turned 10, because um, <laughs> when my mom would take us to the doctor, I would notice things that I thought weren't fair. And so I would start asking questions. And when you ask questions, you just start to get answers that don't make sense to you. And so I always said, well, I want to change these things. I was also that person that when I noticed something, I would petition before my parents why we should switch providers. And it's it's brought me here and it's keeping me here. So, mm. Dr. Whittington, did you want to speak to the Institute a bit as well? 
Dr. Carter, uh, when you mentioned being the newbie um, on the Board of Health, <laughs> I felt like the newbie when Dr. White asked <laughs> me to serve on this board. And so just being around them every single meeting, and it takes a lot of work to put something like this together, but every single meeting was so amazing to me because I learned something. And even though uh, the individuals he mentioned were all black, but we have diverse perspectives on things. Mm. I won't say that I'm in a different generation than Dr. Carter, but I might be. Um, and so there's just, <laughs> so there's just there's different issues that you know are brought to the forefront. And I appreciate uh, his perspective all the time. In fact, he is one of my mentors as well. Now he doesn't know it, but I also um, ask him lots of questions. So <laughs> thanks doc. Anytime. So the, the Institute conducted a webinar titled The Healing Power of Music last year, led by Dr. Lisa Wong, a pediatrician and musician, who is a strong advocate for using music in medicine. Can you talk about how music can be used for healing? If I could just first start by um, sharing how this Please webinar do. came to be. So our wonderful group of board members met several times and we were coming up with programming. How do we bring people together from all professions and just, you know, different interests and talk about health? and things that are important. So a few years ago, uh, when Harvard Medical School used to have the talks at 12, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Wong gave this brilliant presentation on how music affects the brain. The lecture was just absolutely incredible. And I really identified with it because I'm also a violinist. She talked about you know, growing up and studying music. I'm like, oh my gosh, I had some of the same experiences. But then seeing her as a pediatrician who's still a musician, it's just amazing. And so it just came up in conversation. And we said, you know, what about the connection between music and healing? And then it went from there. And then we started adding other experts. Uh, we had Dr. Gephardt. Eric, yeah, yeah. Dr. Kirk Taylor was the moderator. And then um, a couple of other individuals. Such a fruitful discussion. And mm. part one, we had so many registrants. It had to have been close to 250 or so. Mm. And the conversation was so incredible. And everyone just seemed like they wanted more. And mm -hmm. then we scheduled a part two that was also incredible. And to hear the different perspectives was just wonderful. I agree. It was a, it was a great program. And I, I think anytime you can give folks something that is calming, something that is soothing, something that makes them think a bit and done in a way with, with doctors, these are all, I mean, except for the two musicians, I mean, everybody else was Kurtz, a doctor, a neurologist, actually, it was also a pianist. <laughs> and uh, so we had all these musicians on, um, along with a couple of professionals, a guy who had worked mm -hmm. with a church down in Texas, uh, does a lot of spiritual stuff and a, and a, and a, and a conductor and musician in Chicago. Mm -hmm. It was just a beautiful program and it's available on, on our website, awinstitute.org, it's right there. How can a healthcare center or an individual facing health inequity access the resources the Institute provides? 
Well, we, you know, we have a website and the website will refer people to other people. Say if you're dealing with something with, with maternal and child health, well, our partner in this and a stakeholder is the March of Dimes. We had a huge benefit program in November for the March of Dimes called uh, Black Tie for Babies. It was a black tie event. We raised a uh, half million dollar for the program. And out of that money, we'll be funding for uh, a NICU at uh, Boston Medical Center and some other things. And we're doing that with many organizations as we can. Dr. White spoke about the groups that would get disparate health care. And, and if you're in, in one of those 13 groups, you know, even if it's unconscious, you're going to get that. If you walk into the emergency room or walk in clinic or an office, if you're black, you're going to get disparate health care. If you're a Latino, you're going to get disparate health care. If you're a woman, you're going to get disparate health care. If you're fat, you're going to get disparate health care. Mm-hmm. If you're gay or lesbian, you're going to get disparate health care. Those are built-in attitudes that we have to change. And one way to do that, I think, is to try to prepare people for the encounter in the emergency department. Mm-hmm. That sounds crazy, but you want to prepare them. So, you know, give them a cheat sheet. You know, you're going in with abdominal pain. These are some questions you might want to ask your doctor. Mm-hmm. Because what typically happens is a person goes in, uh, they get examined, the doctor says something, and they come out and you say, what did the doctor say? Well, he said, take these pills. Mm-hmm. Well, what are the pills for? I don't know. He just said, take these pills. I don't know. So you'd like to sort of have people be informed when they come out of that, uh, out of that encounter, even though they are, you know, sort of sick and not feeling well, but you want them to sort of go into have good questions that they can, uh, can ask and be able to sort of talk about the encounter when they come out. And more than just, I got these pills and I'm supposed to see my doctor in two weeks. So for those groups that I mentioned, those 13 groups, we're putting together little blurbs. You know, if you're gay or lesbian, we got a little blurb. You know, these are the healthcare issues that are important to ask your doctor about. And, uh, and, we're, and we're working on that right now. Mm. Amazing. Thank you both so very much. It has been such a pleasure to have this conversation with both of you. Thank, Thank you. you. For it's been great. Me. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community and beyond. We are always looking to connect and collaborate with the research community and would like to hear from you. Please feel free to email us at onlineeducation.catalyst.harvard.edu to inquire about being a guest on the podcast.